صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Palestine Remembered. We're joined by a fantastic Palestinian out of Canberra, ANU, in fact, Dr. Anas Iktat, who's an adjunct lecturer at ANU College of Business and Economics. He's a visiting research fellow, ANU Center for Arabic and Islamic Studies. He's a non-resident scholar at Middle East Institute, Washington, D.C., as well as a co-founder and chief editor on the Near East Policy Forum. Good morning, Anas. How are you? Good morning, also. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure, and it's a real pleasure. Thank you so much. And that's one of the things we like to do whenever we get a new guest on the show is to ask them to take us through their Nakba story. I guess my Nakba story starts in 1988 when I was born. I was born in 88, right after the beginning of the first Intifada. Obviously, I don't remember the first few years, but my family, my parents um, tell me that we spent most of the time under curfew, my father was then employed at Birzeit University. Uh, and as you may know, Nasser, Birzeit University has long been described by Israel as a center for uh, Islam, for Palestinian resistance, rather. And Birzeit University during the time was targeted repeatedly and closed uh, by Israeli authorities. So my father not only were under curfew, but also my father's uh, work at Birzeit was um, also put on hold. Uh, my mother was a social science school teacher. Schools were also shut for months at a time. Fast forward a few years uh, to the second intifada. And um, my first really political memories of Palestine was um, when I was in seventh grade. And um, I remember I was attending a school in a village that is right outside Ramallah. And I would take the taxi every day from Ramallah to that village, to Bitin village, which is right next to Beit Il settlement, which is located uh, at the northern parts or the northern lands of Albire and Ramallah. The drive from Ramallah to Bitin, that village, is about nine to ten minutes. If there is traffic, it's about 15-minute drive. I remember on the day the Intifada started, I went to school normally. And then on the drive back, there was a checkpoint uh, next to Beit Il settlement, which basically blocks the path between Bitin village and Ramallah city. And soldiers had blocked that road, um, which was the only road that we could access from that village to Ramallah. Now, my family lives in Ramallah, and I was on the other side, um, um, 12-year-old guy, seventh grade, coming back from school, uh, not knowing what to do. Um, I just basically moved around with the crowds. Uh, the public transport driver of the vehicle that I was uh, in um, drove around the northern parts, the village, the villages of Ramallah, 
and took a very long path um, that in about an hour and a half later, I ended up in Ramallah city. Um, and then I walked back to my house, which is in, in Albire. So um, it was another like 20 minute walk. And the minute that I arrived, I will never forget this for the rest of my life. The minute that I arrived home, I found my mom in the street in front of our house crying. I found my dad standing with a plastic bag. And inside of this plastic bag was our birth certificates, our IDs, and, um, and, and other major documents that you know, tell who we are as a family. Um, um, I didn't mention this, but I come from a family of, of, of five children, uh, three boys and two girls, um, and my parents. Um, now, my mom was crying because we didn't have cell phone at the time, and she knew I was at that village at Pitin, and she knew that the road was blocked, and she had no idea where I was, what was going on, um, if I was ever going to come home, and all of that. And my father had that document and had that plastic bag with all of these documents because there were rumors that the Israeli army was preparing to enter Ramallah and no one knew what was going, no one knew what was going to happen. Um, and people, some people thought of the worst, which was basically the Israeli army coming in and even potentially kicking some people out um, and this, uh, um, kicking them out even to Jordan or, or as, as a worst case scenario. A few hours later, we lost electricity, and, um, and that was the day when um, the Israeli army uh, bombed uh, some, um, some buildings in Ramallah. Um, I believe that was uh, the 29th or the 28th of September, 2000. And, um, 2000. Um, the following three to four years were basically a copy of this day. Um, um, in 2002, um, I was attending the Ramallah High School, public high school, uh, which is at the heart of Ramallah city. Um, and in 2002, between January, February and April, the Israeli army had, um, had a major operation across the West Bank, and they basically reoccupied most of the cities, um, which were always occupied. But then the Israeli army basically re-entered most of the cities with tanks and, uh, and so on. Um, and I remember between February and April, uh, we were under strict curfew. The curfew was lifted only three, uh, only three to four hours every three days, every three to four days. Um, and you would be allowed this three to four hour window to go shop. Um, um, at the beginning of the, this curfew period, um, the, um, an Israeli tank with a loudspeaker um, attached to it uh, drove through our neighborhood and announced that anyone who was between the age of 15 and 45 must um, go to um, our uh, neighborhood school um, immediately. And if uh, people don't comply, anyone who doesn't comply um, would uh, be punished severely by the Israeli army. So I was lucky because I was 14 years and a half. I hadn't turned 15 yet. Uh, and my father was 46 years old, or uh, rather, actually, my father was 44 years old. So my father um, dressed up and went to the school um, only to disappear for two and a half months. Um, so during the curfew period, we had 
no idea where my father was. There was zero communication between us and him. Um, we had assumed, we heard that um, many of the people that went to the school were rounded up in buses and transferred somewhere. Um, we honestly didn't know if he was alive or not. Um, um, about a month and a half later, we received a phone call at 2 a.m. in the morning from someone who was imprisoned or detained with my father um, two weeks prior to that. And then my father had given him our house's phone number to call us in case that person was released. And so he called us about a month and a half later, telling us that my father was alive and then he was uh, detained in, in, a, in, a, in a prison camp next to Ramallah. Um, um, so during that period, really, uh, it was uh, horrifying in a way. But as the oldest um, um, uh, child, um, I had to um, um, I had to go out uh, every every window. The Israeli army allowed us to to go and shop for the house, uh, buy flour, buy um, rice, uh, tomatoes. I still remember that. Um, also, I remember the markets uh, being completely empty. Prices were off the roof. One kilo of tomatoes, for example, was 15 shekels. Um, usually, um, a kilo of tomatoes is two and a half shekels, as an example. Um, um, thankfully, um, two months later, after my father had disappeared, uh, we received another phone call at 2 a.m. in the morning from my dad, who was released from Israeli prison, but he was released in the northern city parts of the West Bank. Um, they had released my father. They had put him in a bus um, with three other um, people that they detained um, at some point. Um, and then um, the Isra this Israeli army bus drove all the way up north in the West Bank and then dropped my father along with three other um, 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 Palestinians on, on an Israeli bypass settler road um, at 2 a.m. in the morning or 1 a.m. in the morning um, with no documents indicating that they were being, that were released from Israeli prison. Um, if you're familiar with the situation in the West Bank, particularly in 2002, um, any Palestinian walking around on an Israeli bypass road at 2 a.m. in the morning was an immediate danger. And Israeli army uh, dealt with this in one way, which was shoot to kill. Um, so um, thankfully, my father and the other three um, uh, Palestinians saw a, dis a light in the distance um, beyond some um, orange uh, groves. So they ran towards that light, um, knowing that it was most likely a Palestinian village rather than Israeli settlement. Um, and then um, when they arrived there, my father gave us a call um, again, around 2 a.m. in the morning, um, which was the first time that we heard from him or um, knew 100% that he was fine or alive. Um, now, fast forward a few more weeks when the curfew was lifted. Um, I went back to my high school, which the Israeli army had used it as a um, garage for its tanks. Um, the football field was completely destroyed. Our classrooms were completely trashed. Um, my particular classroom um, was used by Israeli soldiers as a bathroom, and we had to clean the entire school by ourselves um, as students and teachers. The following two years, until 2004, um, basically it was a 
continuation of um, of this. Um, I moved to another school, which was um, less than a hundred meters away from an Israeli settlement. Um, it's a goat, uh, which is built on the lands of Albire um, in Ramallah, um, and um, every recess uh, we would have our recess between 10 30 or 10 25 in the morning and, and 11 um, and uh, during every recess the israeli soldiers would give us a visit basically by throwing tear gas um, at uh, um, at the school's courts uh, in several occasions we had tear gas even thrown inside of our classrooms um, the headmaster of the school was repeatedly beaten and humiliated by israeli soldiers in front of the entire schools uh, we had several school, several friends and several schoolmates um, get shot and injured and detained by Israeli soldiers. That was a regular scene. So this all goes back to say, this is my Nakba. I know many may say that, may talk about the Nakba and give a story of their families and what happened in 1948. I also can tell uh, one or two stories of 1948 and 1967, but I also wanted to tell my own story and the way that I view the Nakba. The Nakba is what every Palestinian goes through. Um, and it's not something that happened in 1948. It's something that continues to happen every single day for most of us. In 2004, I left Palestine to attend high school in the United States. Um, and um, ever since, I have returned to Palestine several times to live and work. I look back at my time grow, growing up in Palestine, and I wouldn't trade it, trade it for anything else in the world. Um, even though it was difficult, but it's something, it's made me who I am and it's something that I cherish, cherish um, the, fact that I, the, the fact that I was born Palestinian, the fact that I uh, could call myself as a Palestinian and um, connect with the rest of Palestinians who have lived in this piece of land for thousands and thousands of years and, um, and make this struggle define who we are today and hopefully um, it will define who we become in the future. Um, and uh, hopefully it is something that is much better than our recent past. Thanks very much for sharing that with us, Anas. Thanks for joining us on Palestine Remembered. You're listening to Dr. Anas Iktat. Joining me, Nasser Mashni on Palestine Remembered. We'll be right back after this short message. Free Palestine Melbourne has organised a forum when prison is a weapon, the Palestinian reality. Go to fpmelbourne.org. That's fpmelbourne.org to register. The event's October 3 from 8 till 9.30 p.m. Included will be Nadia Dukka from Palestine, Bassam Tamimi from Palestine, our own Yusuf Rimawi here from Melbourne, and it will be chaired by Melissa from Free Palestine Melbourne. Again, the event is October 3 from 8 till 9.30. Go to fpmelbourne.org. Hope to see you there. Anas, you're in Canberra now, your uh, expertise. Let's talk about the economics, the economics in Palestine. Oslo 93, interim Palestine administration, the PA, to look after that interim period of five years. Here we are now, 28 years later, still no state. The PA exists. As I understand it, last year with COVID, the GDP of Palestine went backwards. We're in all sorts of levels of uh, recession. 25% of our economy is predicated on international aid. Things are really bad economically in Palestine. Why don't you take us through that? Yes, um, let's start with this. I think that calling what we have in Palestine as an economy is too generous of a description. What the Palestinian markets or semi-economies in the West Bank and Gaza are, in reality, um, are an extension of the Israeli market slash wider economy. 
the Palestinians never truly had an economy. Even when um, the Palestinian economy was allegedly thriving towards the end of the 1990s or 1999, when we had the lowest unemployment, at least recorded unemployment rate, we didn't really have an economy. It was always a market um, that served as a market for Israeli products, that served as a source of cheap labor to the wider Israeli economy, that also served as an extension to Israeli money supply, which is an important point that is often overlooked. The money circulated in the West Bank and Gaza is in the hundreds of billions of shekel, um, and this represents a significant purchasing power for the Israeli currency as well as the Israeli economy. The little economic activity that we have um, is um, generally defined um, um, or is generally shaped by basic services. Uh, you may have noticed when visiting Palestine that uh, most of the services that are, that are offered are um, um, quite limited. Um, they are, um, um, there's also, um, um, most of these services are also controlled by a very number, a very small number of, um, of institutions that provide them. Um, and um, the economy is designed in a way to protect these interests and to continue these offerings without necessarily providing any, um, any form of, um, of competition um, or um, offerings that could be beneficial for, uh, for everyday Palestinians. Um, so to, when we think about the Palestinian economy um, and we think about its GDP or its growth rate or its unemployment rate and so on, um, I do believe that we are missing the bigger picture. The bigger picture is that there isn't an economy this is a market that is just getting by, that is providing some sort of income circulation, uh, making sure that the Palestinians are receiving some sort of income so they can survive without giving Palestinians uh, the keys to form a true national economy that will uh, one day be capable of uh, building an independent national economy for Palestinians. So if you can take us through that, Anas, because one of my criticisms of the PA and the institutions that exist today is it's subcontracting occupation of Palestinians by the PA and by these sycophantic business types. Yes, um, certainly. The, if we look at the Palestinian Authority's budget, if we look at its expenditures, most of the expenditure is financed by clearance revenue. Um, of this constitutes about 65% of total expenditure. Just explain what a clearance revenue is, Enes. Definitely. So clearance revenue are taxes that are collected um, by Israel from Palestinian traders for importing products to the Palestinian markets. Um, they are basically tariffs um, that um, um, of about 17% or so uh, that Palestinian traders pay on everything that they import from the rest of the world to the Palestinian market. Uh, this excludes um, imports from Israel. Again, showcasing that um, the Palestinian economy is not necessarily independent of the Israeli economy. It's just an extension of the Israeli economy. Um, the uh, trade between the Palestinian and Israeli side is dictated by exchanging value-added tax rather than um, tariffs um, and other forms of uh, taxes that are usually um, levied on international imports or exports. Uh, so clearance revenue, um, the majority of it at least, represents these taxes that are um, paid by Palestinian importers 
on everything that they import from the rest of the world to Palestinian markets. And because the Palestinian Authority um, lacks uh, sovereignty in any shape, but mostly sovereignty over land and does not control points of entry to the Palestinian market, um, um, Palestinian traders have to deal with the Israeli government, the Israeli private sector, and the Israeli legal system in order to import anything to, from the rest of the world to the Palestinian markets. And this, of course, um, generates a ton of wealth for the Israeli side. Some of this wealth is transferred to the Palestinian Authority in the form of clearance revenue. Um, um, the, and this constitutes about 65% of the Palestinian Authority's overall expenditure. Um, another 10 to 15%, depending on the year, and sometimes this figure had um, been as high as 40% as in 2008, as an example, is international aid. Um, international aid is extremely important for the wider Palestinian economic activity um, and used to be at least extremely important for the Palestinian Authority. Over the years, uh, the level of aid that has been handed directly to the PA has declined. Um, but this doesn't mean that aid is still not influential for the PA. It's extremely important and it represents anywhere of between 10 to 15% of overall uh, PA expenditure. The rest of the uh, PA expenditure is basically indirect taxes that the PA um, collects from Palestinians. And this point cannot be under addressed or over addressed rather. Uh, the Palestinian Authority um, the vast majority of its, its expenditure is generated from um, uh, regressive, regressive forms of taxation, um, where basically most of the taxes are levied on, um, on Palestinians um, at an equal rate. Um, the, um, um, and, and, and where you have the wealthiest Palestinians and the, um, and, uh, the most will of Palestinians and Palestinians who um, barely work um, and generate income paying the same rates on products such as cigarettes, um, value-added tax of about 17% on everything that is sold in the Palestinian market, um, and other forms of fees and, and indirect taxes. Um, What's important here is that the PA, since 1993, has failed to build any connection with its domestic base to convince Palestinians um, who are well off or who belong to the mid um, um, uh, to middle income uh, components of Palestinian society to pay direct taxes uh, to the Palestinian authorities' coffers. So direct taxes, and as well as corporate taxes, by the way, uh, represent less than 5% um, of the Palestinian Authority's expenditures. And this is from recent years after the PA has put significant effort into increasing this percentage. Um, so this is where the Palestinian Authority gets its money. All of this is to say that the Palestinian Authority is nothing more than a distributive um, um, authority or a distributive power that basically recycles income in the Palestinian market Clearance revenue is collected from Palestinian traders, handed from the Israeli side to the PA, only for the PA then to um, distribute this uh, wealth uh, back to the Palestinian market through um, salaries or social transfers or public uh, investment and then so on. Uh, the same with international aid, the same with indirect taxation, um, um, showcasing that the Palestinian Authority, again, is nothing more than a distributive uh, authority rather than an authority that 
uh, stands for a national economy um, that can um, manage the Palestinian economy and steer it uh, in any given direction. Thanks for joining us on Palestine Remembered. You're listening to Dr. Anasik Tat. Joining me, Nasser Mashni, on Palestine Remembered. We'll be right back after this short message. Free Palestine Melbourne has organised a forum. When prison is a weapon, the Palestinian reality. Go to fpmelbourne.org. That's fpmelbourne.org to register. The event's October 3 from 8 till 9.30pm. Included will be Nadia Dukka from Palestine, Bassam Tamimi from Palestine, our own Yusuf Arimawi here from Melbourne, and it will be chaired by Melissa from Free Palestine Melbourne. Again, the event is October 3 from 8 till 9.30. Go to fpmelbourne.org. Hope to see you there. I'm sure you'll agree, Dr. Anasik Tat, a wonderful Palestinian and a fantastic credit to Australia. Welcome to Australia, Anas. That's part one of his podcast. Join me on the 9th of October for part two, where we'll talk about Gaza. Next week, I'll have Mel from Free Palestine Melbourne joining us, and she'll be talking to us about the upcoming forum, When Prison is a Weapon, the Palestinian Reality, which will be October 3 from 8 till 9.30. Next up, enjoy Shadia Mansour featuring Dead Prez and Kufiyya Arabiyya. The Kufiyya is Arabic.
Listeners, visit the podcast, share it with your friends, and there's never been a better time for a free Palestine.